this summer, we have been, uh, we, we've been going over a series that we called the Bird's Eye Bible, and, and Wes closed that series up last week uh, by preaching on the book of Revelation. And so today, what, what I'm here to do is to sort of start uh, an annual series, two or three week series that we do every single year. Uh, and what we do, maybe you've not been around or maybe you haven't noticed, but what we do every year is, is we cast vision, really we recast vision for why this church exists. Okay, and if you didn't know, uh, GBC exists to glorify God by making disciples who transform the world. Okay, so our primary purpose as a church is to glorify God, and our primary means in doing that is by making disciples. Okay, so what we're going to do tonight is part of an examination of what this looks like. Uh, what I want you to do, what I want you to think about is answer this question. I want you to consider this question. And that is, uh, are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? Are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? This is an incredibly important question for you to know how to answer. It's a question really that all of us have to answer, regardless of whether you grew up in the church or, or if you haven't grown up in the church. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you have to answer this question. Are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? And at first, you might be like, yeah, of course I am. I'm here, right? I'm at church. Uh, and that might be true, but I want to pause and I want to really consider, I want to think about this question. And the way we're going to try to answer that question is first by identifying, by figuring out what the terms of Jesus are, right? That makes sense. If we're going to try to answer that question. We didn't know what Jesus' terms, what his conditions are. And the good news is those are laid out fairly explicitly for us in Luke 14. So if you would, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you already haven't, to, to Luke 14. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 33. And just to give you guys some, some time to get there, you need to know, just to catch you up, Jesus is, is sort of on the back end of his ministry in this passage. Uh, and at the time, he's, he's attracting huge crowds. Uh, people are coming in droves to come see him because Jesus is doing miracles and he's casting demons out and people are starting to talk. Word is starting to spread. And so people are coming to see Jesus because humans love spectacles. And so this huge crowd has come to see Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Jesus says to them in Luke 14. And what Jesus said, says is going to shed some light uh, on this question that, that I've asked you. It's going to give us some, some identifiers for what discipleship, being a disciple, actually looks, at, looks like. Okay, so before we read our text, let me pray for our time together. Father, we're uh, thankful that uh, you're a God that has chosen to reveal yourself to us. And as we approach uh, your word tonight, Lord, I pray that you'd allow uh, all of us, Lord, to, to see and know what's true. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be present, that he would illuminate that truth to us, uh, and that, Lord, that truth would not just fill our minds up, but it would actually transform who we are, that we would leave this place different people, uh, Lord, and that we would leave this place looking to impact the world around us. We need you for that, so we pray that you'd be present. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, starting with verse 25 of Luke 14, I'm going to read all the way to verse 33. Okay, Luke 14, 25 starts like this. 
It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, so these are Jesus' terms. And having just read them, having just listened to them, I want you to think for a second uh, about what it would have been like to be in that crowd, to be standing in the crowd, to put yourself in, in the shoes of the people that are listening to these words of Jesus. You're like, okay, to follow you, I'm supposed to hate my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister and my wife and my child. I'm supposed to pick up an instrument of torture, and I'm supposed to give up everything that I have. Like, that's pretty extreme, right? That's really harsh, right? If we're honest, I I know that this is Jesus, and so he sort of gets a free pass to say whatever he wants, but like, this is alarming. This is shocking. And if it it doesn't shock you, you might not be paying close enough attention. And here's the deal. As you listen to this, you might be thinking, man, I... I'm just in commercial real estate. I'm I'm just a lawyer. I'm just just a mom. I'm just a teacher. These words of Jesus, these are for people that are in vocational ministry. This is a message for missionaries. Or maybe you're just sort of kicking tires. You're here, you know, maybe for the first time, or you're trying to get back into church, and you hear these words, and and you're like, man, I'm I'm just testing the waters out. This message is one for committed Christians. But you gotta hear this. This wasn't Jesus speaking to a mature crowd that was looking to go deeper. This wasn't Jesus just talking to the 12 disciples, right? This was, this was Jesus speaking to people who were initially interested in him, really people that were going out to see a miracle, that were following him around looking for his next miracle. And this text, our passage, what Jesus has to say is his invitation to them. This is an evangelistic text. Hate your family, pick up your cross, and give up everything you own. Like, this is not a great strategy to start a movement, right? Before we start to look at these terms of discipleship, the, the cost of discipleship, I, I want to clarify something here at the beginning. Uh, this text does not emphasize the facts of the gospel. When I say the facts of the gospel, what I mean is Jesus was, was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died an excruciating death. He raised from the dead three days later. This text isn't talking uh, about those facts. Instead, what it's doing is it's talking about the attitude of a true disciple. And here's the deal. There are a, a lot of people who know those facts, 
There's a lot of people even that will affirm the truthfulness of those facts. And yet those people will not enter the kingdom of God. And here's the deal. you, you got to know, one of my biggest fears, something I pray about all the time for our church, is that I feel like I'm afraid of the fact that a lot of us are sitting out here and we get the facts right, but we miss the attitude. And, and I, wanna, I want you to hear this. One cannot, it does not go without the other. So much of what Jesus teaches us in the Gospels has to do with the attitude of a disciple. And so, remember, as you consider the question that I ask, as you think about whether or not you're willing to come to Jesus on his terms, I want you to remember that. This is not a, yes, I believe in the the truthfulness of this set of facts. Instead, this is about your attitude. This is about my attitude, my disposition. Really, it's all about priorities. Okay, so let's look at our first term. There's, There's three of them. We're going to look at the first one, and it comes in in verse 26. Look back at verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, so what does this mean? And first, we we kind of have to clear this up, right? We, We know that Jesus is not advocating for us hating our families here, right? Like, like bringing the rest of, of Jesus' teaching into context here, we know that's not what he's saying. But I want to I explain that a little bit better because as you read through this, and as people that don't know Jesus read through this, that's exactly what he says. He explicitly says you have to hate these people. Okay, so what is Jesus meaning here? To understand, uh, you have to know that the Jews had an interesting way uh, of using the words love and hate. So when you read this, this is sort of like an idiom, like a a turn of phrase. And what it does is it expresses preference. So Jesus is using this term, uh, if you're familiar with Romans 9, he's using this term just like Paul does in Romans 9 where he's quoting Genesis and Malachi. If If you're not familiar with what Romans 9 says, it says, Esau I hated, but Jacob I have loved. And what Paul is not quoting here, what God is not saying is that God has some sort of emotional loathing for Esau. What he's saying is that he prefers Jacob to Esau. In that context, he's chosen Jacob and he's not chosen Esau. And so kind of knowing that and keeping that in mind, what Jesus is saying then is that his disciples' love for him should be so absolute, it should be so superior that every other type of love in the whole world would pale in comparison. So much so that every other type of love, when compared to our love, their love for Christ, would look like hate. Okay, It's not saying we should hate the people we love. You have to understand that. It's not that we don't love those people. It's that we love him so much more. And so if we're trying to come to Jesus on his term, the question for us in light of this verse, verse 26 of Luke 14, is this. Do you love Christ? Do you want Christ? What I'm not asking is, do you go to church? Do you read your Bibles? Do you pray? Are you a good person? I'm asking, do you love Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Because here's the deal. You and me, we love our jobs and our relationships and our families and our friends and our hobbies 
to the point where, where Jesus really just sort of gets our leftovers, if, if anything at all, right? And if you want a, a really practical way to evaluate how you're doing on this, think about it like this. If, if someone were to take a look at the way you spend your time, if someone were to, to log the way that you've spent your time, let's say in the last month or so, what would they find? What are you spending your time doing? Because ultimately time, even more than money, is our most valuable resource, right? And when, when we love something, when we love someone, what do we do? We spend time with that person. We spend time thinking about that person. We spend time doing that thing. So where do you spend your time? What is it that you love? Because here's the deal. This is really hard. But if Jesus is not at the top of that list, according to chapter 14, verse 26 of Luke's gospel, Jesus would tell to you, you cannot even be my disciple. Okay, so first, we have to love Jesus with a superior love. Second term comes in verse 27. Verse 27 says, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, so here what Jesus is saying is that if you don't pick up a cross and follow him, you can't be his disciple. And you, you might have heard this phrase before, you know, uh, even if you haven't been in the church, people will say all the time, like, oh, this is the cross I have to bear, right? Like, like people will use this phrase, especially when they're referring to like first world problems, right? Like they'll be like, some guy will get in from work that day and he'll be like, man, my $7 latte that I got at Starbucks came with one espresso shot and not two. But I guess that's just kind of, you know, the cross I have to bear today. Uh, other people, you know, you're on vacation in Seaside and you're like, man, this awesome house that we rented, the shower doesn't stay hot. But I guess, you know, for the week, that's just kind of the cross we have to bear. Okay, so that's not what Jesus is meaning here. Uh, to understand, uh, you need to not think of a cross like most of us think of it today, like, like on a necklace or as a decoration on a wall. We've grown so accustomed to seeing the cross as, as sort of a religious or a sentimental symbol that I think we've lost some of the meaning here that Jesus is trying to convey. But for the crowd listening to Jesus' word, remember, we're trying to put ourselves in their shoes. For the crowd listening, the cross was not a sentimental symbol at all. It was a gruesome reality that they would see all the time. Crucifixion was a form of execution that was invented by the Romans, and it was a form of execution that was very public. And it was one of the most cruel, most demoralizing, most humiliating things ever imagined. What Jesus does is he takes this image, this horrifying image, and he says, unless you carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me. This would be so extreme. This, this would have been so hard to hear. You know why? The only people that carry a cross are convicted criminals, people that are punished to die. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, the reality of carrying a cross is this. If you're carrying a cross, you're a dead man walking. You have no dreams. You have no plans. You have no ideas. Everything is over for you if you're carrying a cross. And this is the picture that Jesus gives us to describe what following him is like. He's saying that if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a Christian, you have to die. Really, you're dead. 
You're, you're dead to yourself. You're dead to your dreams. You're dead to your hopes. You're dead to your plans. You're dead to any ideas that you had for what was going to happen in your life. You're, you're dead. And if that feels heavy, it's because it is. This changes everything. Not just our perspective. This changes our priorities. This changes our ambitions. This changes our appetites. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's making a huge claim to authority over your life, my life, if we're to follow him. It means that if we're following him, we don't determine what's right and wrong for us. We don't determine what's good for us. Jesus does. And this means that what you can't do, what I can't do, is is go to Jesus and be like, yeah, yeah, I want to be saved, I want to be a Christian, uh, but I'm still going to kind of cut some corners here at work. What it means is you can't go to Jesus and say, like, yeah, I want to be a Christian, but like, I still want to live with my fiance. I still want to have sex before I get married. What it means is you can't go to Jesus and say, like, this greed, this lust, this anger, whatever it is, you can't hold on to that. I'm, I'm going I'm to do this thing over here. No. Listen, what Jesus says here is this is the end of you. This is the end of your desires. It's the bottom line. And living this way is costly. And Jesus knows this. And I say that with confidence because in this very passage, Jesus provides us with two illustrations that make his point. And they come in verses 28 through 32. Jesus in those verses, this is a paraphrase, he says, What man would start a huge project and not determine whether he had enough money and materials to finish it? Or what person would go out to battle knowing that they're outnumbered two to one and not try to strategize, not try to deliberate before they go to war? And what Jesus is doing here with these illustrations, with these two pictures, is he's warning us, he's warning them against making hasty emotional decisions to follow him. What he's doing is he's pleading, count the cost, count the cost. Jesus knows this is hard. He knows this way of life is costly. I want to remind you, remember what we said from the very beginning. This is an evangelical text. This is an evangelistic text. This is Jesus with an opportunity to make waves. There are tons of people that are following him, waiting to hear what he's all about. And his method, his strategy is so different than ours. Here's the deal, just to to kind of let you in on the inside, churches today, uh, parachurch ministries today, uh, we're seeking mass appeal. I want to draw big crowds. Uh, When you get together with pastors, they're so focused on numbers. And generally, uh, the idea is to figure out what barriers prevent people from following Jesus, what it is that hold people uh, from walking down an aisle or praying a prayer And the strategy, generally, is to try to remove those barriers, to to eliminate them, to make the decision to follow Jesus as easy as possible for the most people possible. But what we see in this text is Jesus is doing the exact opposite of this. He did everything he could to put up barriers constantly by making statements that were absolute and extreme and exclusive. And the reason why is because Jesus is not after superficial followers. In fact, what he says over and over again is there's no such thing as a superficial Christian. 
And since, in some ways, like I said, these next three weeks are sort of casting, recasting vision for, for GBC, I want to let you know that our model, what we're trying to do here, is built on, on weekly small groups that, that meet for two hours, that require you to do a lot of work and preparation and, and relational time outside of that group. What we're trying to do in this is, is we're trying to pattern our ministry, the ministry of this church, after the ministry of Jesus. And you need to know this, whether you've been here for a long time or you're new, it's the heart of our elders, it's the hope of our staff to call you to a high standard. We want to raise the bar high. We don't want to lower it to make it as easy as possible for you. And I promise you, we're not doing that because we want to be some huge church in Houston. We're, we're not doing that because we want to we collect these huge crowds, We're doing that because we're convicted. We think that Christian maturity comes from making a priority of your relationship with Jesus. And what that means is that might mean that you have to make some hard decisions. Decisions that pit two good things up against each other. About work and about church and about family and about hobbies and about free time. But we want you thinking those things. We want you talking those things out. We want you to count the cost. We want you to ask yourself, what does it look like to make your relationship with Jesus a priority? And here's the deal. If that's what you want, if you want to prioritize your relationship with Jesus, and if you belong to this church, if you go to this church, then consistent engagement in small groups is imperative. Consistently trying to serve and to use your gifts outside of the walls of this church is imperative. And so we're going to constantly be putting those things in front of you. We're going to constantly be reminding you of that. And no, it's not easy. We know it's not easy. But think about it. Nothing in life that's ever worth it is easy. Okay, so to review, first, we have to love Jesus supremely. Secondly, we have to deny ourselves. We have to die to ourselves. This way of life, like we just talked about, is costly, but Jesus isn't quite done yet. There's a, there's a third term, and it comes in verse 33. Verse 33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, so here Jesus tells us that in order to be his disciple, we have to relinquish everything we have. That's the word there. If you're reading the ESV, it says relinquish. In Greek, it literally means to say goodbye to. We're called to relinquish, give up, say goodbye to all the things that we have. Now, you might be thinking, in what sense do we give them up? Does this mean that we have to sell everything? You need to leave church right now, go sell your house and your car and all your possessions in order to be a Christian? Not necessarily. Maybe, but not necessarily. Here's what I mean. This is what Jesus is calling for. In becoming a disciple of Jesus, you, I, become a steward of everything and an owner of nothing. You become a a steward of everything and an owner of nothing. And of all of this, this is what is most convicting to me. Everything that we have is God's. And therefore, he has the right to use it for his purposes. Our houses, our checking accounts, our investments, all of these are his. And he can use them for his sake and his glory. 
for whatever he thinks is best. And this is hard for me because I know I'm a pastor, but like, I have a ton of stuff. And, and I'm an American, and I earned that stuff, right? Like, I have an awesome house here in the Heights, and I have a car that I like to drive, and I, I have a TV mounted on my wall that I can watch the Astros every single night because I have cable TV, and I have an iPhone, and I have a dog, and I earned those things. I earned the right to own those things. And, and you might have more than me, or, or you might have less than me, but the idea behind what Jesus is saying to you and to me is that all of that, every bit of it, is his to use for his purposes. And to be a disciple, whether you're rich or poor, means that you renounce ownership over everything that you have. You might even have to give it away or, or give it up for his sake. But no matter what, the bottom line for this point is that what you own is actually not yours. Okay, so this passage, this text, we hear Jesus' words to this huge crowd, this, this big uh, evangelical pitch. And his words, if we're honest, are not comforting. They're threatening. They're, they're, they're not easy. They're hard. And his invitation to follow him, his invitation to salvation, while motivated certainly by by compassion and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace and joy, this message is demanding to an extreme level. See, what we read here, what we see here in Luke 14, this is not Christianity light. This is not man-centered. This is not about loving yourself. Instead, this is a call to sinners, to you and me, to submit everything that we have to Jesus. It's a call to find your life in death. It's a call to find your life by losing it, to gain it by abandoning it, to live it to the full by emptying it. Jesus here and everywhere else in the Bible reverses and redefines everything that you and I care about, everything that matters to us. All the people in your life, your own life, the things that you have. And in the end, what Jesus is doing is he's not offering a a makeover. He's not trying to make you better. What Jesus is doing is he's offering a takeover. And this is very different from the form of Christianity that, that most of us have grown up in, most of us have been around in America. And like I said, I, I know this is harsh. And it might leave you thinking, it should leave you thinking, it leaving me thinking, does Jesus just want us to suffer? Like, what do you gain? What do I gain? What do we gain besides just like a bunch of rules and restrictions, right? Like, why love Jesus? Why sacrifice for Jesus? What do we gain? What do we get? Why would we live this way? If you're thinking that, I, I want to close with this. The fact of the matter is that, yes, Jesus does call us to an extreme. This is no doubt a radical way to think and to live. But don't miss it. In this call to sacrifice, in this call to lose yourself, there's also a call to supreme reward and boundless gain. You see, the sacrifice of a Christian, your sacrifice, my sacrifice, is nothing compared to the supremacy of knowing God, to having relationship with Jesus. So yeah, Jesus requires superior love of you and I, but the reality is that Jesus is actually supremely loving, isn't he? That's the beauty of it. Why would I hate my mother and my brother and my dad and my sister and my wife in comparison to love for Christ? Because this is superior love. Not my love for him, his love for me. 
an incredibly faithful love, an incredibly loyal love, a love that sees you and knows exactly who you are and loves you anyways, a love that pursues you even when you reject him, a perfect love. And yes, Jesus requires us to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves. But isn't this exactly what he did? Didn't he deny himself for our sake? Didn't he give up everything that he had for us? Because you see, listen, the context of these verses in Luke 14 is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what that means is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to mount a cross. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to lose everything. And he's going to do it for you and for me. He's made nothing so that you and me can be made sons and daughters of the king. His death and resurrection makes it it possible for us to know God. For us to have relationship with the creator of the world. That's the good news of the gospel. And listen, the, the things of the world, the things that you and I have, all the stuff... Those things, I'm not going to lie, they can amuse you and they can pacify you and they're fun for a time. But nothing satisfies, nothing makes us more content than following Christ. That's why you're always chasing after more. Jesus' way is the way of freedom and joy and security and hope and life. So these are Jesus' terms. Superior love, self-denial, total sacrifice. Remember the question, have you ever come to Jesus on these terms? We've got an opportunity tonight to respond to these words, these terms of Jesus by taking communion. And among other things, communion is a reminder that Jesus is not asking anything of you, anything of me that he hasn't already done. Jesus gave his flesh, he gave his body, he, he shed his blood for you and for me. And so as the musicians come up, I want you to take time to pray. I want you to take time to confess if you need to. I want you to think, have you rejected these words of Jesus in any way? And as you think about that, I want you simultaneously to know, to understand, to reflect, and to celebrate the fact that Jesus has made provision for your failure, both in mounting a cross and also in sending his spirit. I want you to take time to think about that. When the music starts, come forward, starting with the insides of each aisle, go back. Uh, I think maybe there's a community station right over there. So all of you, go that way, right? Uh, Take time now to pray.